I'm Ed Cowan, and this is Scaling Up. To start with, you have to have a learning mindset. You have to have an inquiring mind. You have to be prepared to put the time in and the effort in. And you know, it's a real commitment. Like you've got to really immerse yourself and be prepared to go all in. This podcast aims to educate and inspire by telling the stories of great growth companies as told by their CEOs and founders. TDM is an Australian-based investment firm that invests globally in fast-growing public and private companies. For more insights, visit our website, tdmgrowthpartners.com. Cameron McIntyre is one of Australia's most respected executives and he joins me today on Scaling Up. Cameron's played a major part in the car sales journey over the last 15 years. Firstly, as the CFO back in the late 2000s, where he led the business in their transition to the ASX boards, and most recently as the CEO, having been charged with leading the business through their next stage of growth. Car sales is now an absolute beast of a business, with a market cap of over $7 billion and a revenue line of over $440 million. It really is one of Australia's great technology companies. Car sales started in a Melbourne garage in the late 1990s by Greg Roebuck, one of Australia's most decorated founders. And this episode not only explores the car sales growth journey from these very humble beginnings, but really zooms in on the strategic pillars over time that has enabled this. The conversation with Cam is a great exploration on the variety of skills needed as a modern executive and serves as a wonderful case study into how to build and lead great teams over very long periods of time. Success is not about getting to the top, but staying there. And to hear Cameron speak about how he thinks about innovation, retaining great talent, and what is on the next horizon for car sales as a global business. There's a great new social feature in the Spotify app that allows you to give feedback on this episode, and I'd love to hear it so that we can continue to tell great stories that you all want to hear. You can also always provide feedback or suggestions via the social channels, and you can find me on Twitter, at Eddie Cowan. Cam, an absolute treat to have you on Scaling Up. Thanks for joining me. I thought a nice place to start would be with a quick history lesson of sorts. There must have been something in the water back in the late 1990s in Melbourne because three of Australia's largest technology companies were all founded within, I don't know, two years of each other and all within a couple of kilometres of each other. And here in the car sales office, we can see the Seek building, bright and shiny, and the REA building down the road. What was in the ecosystem at the time? It's great to be here, Ed, and fantastic to get the opportunity to talk to you. But it's one of life's mysteries, mate, isn't it? I mean, how did this all come to pass? I can only talk to the car sales story, but um, we grew out of a little tech company that was operating down in Monash University, building computer systems for car dealers, and and they decided to build a, a platform for dealers to exchange parts on, and that just evolved into all its published cars on the internet and really organic, founded in 1997 and uh, it's been a great ride since. But uh, yeah, it's just amazing. Melbourne has a fantastic ecosystem around tech businesses. It's just evolved organically. Greg Roebuck, the founder of Car Sales that you alluded to, founded the story in a garage, a mentor of yours through your Car Sales executive journey. He recruited you in 2007 as the CFO. What did you see in the business, both culturally and structurally, when you arrived? 
Yeah, 2007 was a, a really big year for me. I guess I'd take a little step back and go, before I came to car sales, I was part of Census. And uh, Census was the jewel in the crown of Telstra. And we spent a lot of time analysing marketplaces because we were a directories business and marketplaces made a lot of sense to us. So for me, um, understanding jobs, cars and real estate uh, was something I'd spent quite a bit of time on in terms of understanding the ecosystem. Internet was evolving, emerging in the early 2000s. Yeah, Google had arrived in 2002. And so you could see a winner-take-all with these sorts of uh, businesses as they were growing. And look, I was fortunate enough, I got tapped on the shoulder one day and asked to catch up with Greg. We had a great chat. Second interview was at the pub over a couple of beers and I really liked Greg. I really liked where the business was going. The talent that we had in the board in terms of Sir James Packer and John Alexander in, in those days was quite a powerful board and the business was obviously going to go places. And I'd, uh, I'd spent a little bit of time at school overseas and there was uh, a professor that said to me, you know, life short, do something cool with your life. And so for me, this was the moment in my life where I needed to take some risk and uh, I needed to have a real red hot crack at something. And for me, car sales was the perfect opportunity. And the risk reward has certainly paid off. You talk about marketplaces being winner takes most or in some cases winner takes all business models. I think at the time when you arrived, car sales were probably $20 million in revenue and correct me if I'm wrong. Did you get a sense at that point in time that car sales was going to be the winner in Australia, in the marketplace of selling cars? It was a really competitive environment. So back in 2007, our biggest competitors were Telstra. I mean, Telstra, where I'd come from, we owned Trading Post. And, uh, and they were big. They were our biggest competitor. We were competing against News Corp. News Corp owned Cars Guide. We were competing against Fairfax, our oldest media company in the, in the country. So biggest telco two of the biggest media giants. And we were just a little business operating out of a shop front in Oakley. So yeah, as much as we had a good eye on it and we were a pure play digital player, we still felt like we were a bit of a challenger and we had to run super hard and super fast and just you know, stay focused on what we were wanting to achieve. So it never felt like it was a winner take all. I mean, if I reflect on back in 2007, the combined market cap of car sales theoretical market cap of car sales, because we're public unlisted, plus seat plus REA, was the market cap of Fairfax. Yeah, those three businesses combined were as big as Fairfax. And you go... Haven't the tables turned? Well, the table has turned. <laughs> it's easy to forget, looking back, what has been built over 25 years. It's such a wonderful insight to hear you say that you felt like the challenger, because when you are looking back, you can always tell yourself different stories. Can you remember what the key strategic pillars were at that time? It seems from the outside, you were just laser focused on enabling sellers to sell their cars with as little friction as possible. And that really resonated with the consumer. That is 100% right. I mean, our game plan was always focused around the consumer. You win the consumer, you win the war. So there was an absolute laser focus on removing friction uh, making it easy for people to transact on car sales, being highly accountable to our customer as well, being our dealer customer, but also being our private seller customer and having a business model that was simple as well, that people understood. 
but also generated outcomes. So we're very focused on outcomes. And you know, when people sell their car, they only care about two things, really. I mean, they only care about, one, selling their car and getting a good price, and then doing it as quickly as they possibly can. So you know, our laser focus was around those outcomes. And we knew that you know, if we comped ourselves against every other business model of our competitors, we had a distinct competitive advantage if that was the focus, because it was much harder for traditional media to replicate that sort of model. We'll come back to these pillars as they kind of stand today, but the playbook really enacted itself of aggregating the supply side of the marketplace by making it as easy as possible to sell, as you say, whether you're a dealer or a private seller. And then with so much liquidity, the demand side would always just flood in. And that's why when the network effects start working, it is a winner-take-most environment. But just to hold the period of time, a few call-outs. You mentioned James Packer on the board. PBL were a very chunky minority investor. I think they earned up to 49% of points in time. What did you learn from managing that relationship with a very powerful investor, someone who maybe wasn't necessarily completely aligned with the long-term vision of the business, but as the CFO, often that relationship falls to you. And I'm sure it held you in great stead for your future as the CEO, but can you give us an insight into managing that particular stakeholder? So PBL actually controlled car sales. So we had probably the worst public structure or the worst corporate structure of any company that you'd want to have, which is a public unlisted company with a major shareholder uh, that was the biggest media player in town. And we always had the intent of becoming a listed company. But the PBL were great. They supported us well. Uh, yeah, the current chairman of car sales was the chief operating officer of PBL and Pat O'Sullivan's a great mate and he's been involved with car sales for as long as I have. So we always had excellent support. I, I reckon we always had a rock star board, yeah, whether it was James and John Alexander and Ian Law and Pat, and then we had Adrian McKenzie from CVC and, and it was always a pretty powerful board. So being a CFO in that environment was particularly intimidating, but you, know, you always got the right level of support from PBL that we needed. But ultimately as a business, you know, we needed to continue to evolve and uh, yeah, the connections between ourselves and PBL Media, over time, yeah, there wasn't a lot that we were doing together in any way, shape or form. We were very much an independent business and that's how we obviously evolved. You probably see this in the startup and technology ecosystem more so now, but there are a lot of corporate venture arms and a lot of strategic investors. If you were a, a startup founder, how would you think, you know, what are the misgivings or trappings that you might fall into if you are taking on one of these strategic partners as opposed to a more traditional source of capital? For any uh, founder of a startup, getting money's easy. Yeah, there's lots and lots of money out there. But in terms of finding the right support that you need in our business, yeah, that support takes a whole bunch of different shapes and sizes. But you, know, you really need to find people that have the experience, so that intellectual property, so how do I go from point A to point B, how do I tap into people that have done it many times that can help me avoid mistakes? Because, I mean, ultimately as a startup, that's what you want to do. You want to avoid mistakes. And so for us having PBL Media, yeah, there was a lot of mistakes that we avoided because they were able to give us a steer on things that they've seen happen in the past and they were pretty important in the early days. So for me, it's IP. Yeah, there's probably a little bit of access to technology if there's crossover, but 
for anyone looking to start a business, it's the IP that you need, the talent in terms of advice that's the most important, less so about the money. It's a great call out and I certainly agree with your view. Let's keep going along this timeline. You mentioned that car sales at the time was a public unlisted company and was because the first attempted public offering to join the ASX was not particularly well-timed uh, just before the, or in the middle of the tech wreck of 2000s. And so you were enlisted with the job of getting car sales on the boards of the ASX. Obviously, timing again couldn't have been any better or worse, whichever way you want to look at it, but you got it away in the middle of the GFC. What were your key learnings from that process and advice for other CFOs who are looking to list? I'd love to kind of unpack your experience as a CFO while you listed a business. When I came into car sales, yeah, sure, my title was CFO and that was on my business card. But anyone that's involved in a startup or a scale-up knows that what's on your business card as your title is only symbolic of your core skill set. You have to do everything and you have to be involved in everything. You have to have that sort of personality where you just want to immerse yourself. And I think anyone who's looking to get involved in a company from a CFO point of view, looking to list it, you really have to get your hands dirty. It's not a process that you can just sort of kick off and in six months, you're done. Yeah, so in our case, I came into car sales early 2007 you know, we got smashed by the GFC. We'd started the, the listing process towards the back end of 2007. We got into early to mid-ish 2008. The window closed because the GFC hit us and you're halfway through a prospectus and you've got to put pens down. And then we had to pick it up again in, in 2009. But for me, the lessons were you have to start early. It's a two to three year window for anyone looking to IPO a business. You've got to have track record, you've got to have your corporate governance in reasonable shape, you need to have a, an audit committee, you need to have a board with structure around it, you probably need to spend some time doing some non-deal roadshows, which is what we were doing, Greg and I were you know, wandering around doing non-deal roadshows, talking to investors, helping investors understand our business model and, and what is it we're trying to achieve, so that when you do start that IPO process, and it's you know, I look at my career and go, what were the most exhausting times in my career? And an IPO is absolutely exhausting. Everyone thinks it's exciting and, and cool, but in a small business, a startup business where you're trying to grow the company and do an IPO at the same time, it's enormously challenging. So start early and, um, and get the work done. That really is wonderful advice. I want to keep maybe attaching this company timeline to your own personal growth journey because you moved from, as you say, job titles didn't necessarily matter, but at the time you were the CFO, became the COO, and ultimately you've been the CEO and, and done it bloody successfully over the last five or six years. Can you articulate the skills you had to add to your bow over that growth journey moving between those roles and maybe the benefit the previous role had on the role that you then took up? Look, to start with, I mean, you have to have a learning mindset. You have to have an inquiring mind. You have to be prepared to put the time in and the effort in. And, you know, it's a real commitment. Like, you've got to really immerse yourself and be prepared to go all in. So I think for me, to go from where I was to where I am, it's been a real commitment. My family at times had to take a back seat. And if my wife was here, she'd tell you she still is. But you've really got to focus. And so I guess the learnings along the way have been business is about people. Business is about building culture. The corporate skills, uh, doing deals and, and so on. A lot of that's ticket to the ball game, right? I mean, 
understanding people, understanding how people work, understanding how to motivate people, understanding how to get people around a cause and push them forward. I mean, that's that's a core skill and competence. How to build a culture in a business. I think they're the real learnings that you need to get in your kit bag in order to be truly successful. All the technical stuff, I think yeah, that's easy to pick up. We're going to come back to the culture that you have built here over many, many years a little bit later. I want to stay here for the moment. When I was researching you and your own journey, you said something really interesting, and that was the most important thing for you has been improving your own growth quotient. And so I've heard about IQ, EQ, AQ, adversity quotient, but growth quotient is at the top of your list as to what has made you successful. That's a really interesting concept that I hadn't heard before. And so to hear it real time was fascinating. We're very fortunate. We've got a wonderful organisation full of great, talented people. And, you know, a lot of these people have been involved with the organisation for a long time. And, you know, they're truly passionate about what we do here. And so I guess my philosophy is you're only as smart as the group of people that work in the organisation. And so there's this concept of GQ. And for me, it's how do we function as a collective? How do we operate as a, as a team that really makes us stronger and moves us forward? It's not any individual and it's certainly not me. You know, I work hard, I make a good contribution where I can, but we're a far more powerful organisation as a group and working together as we do. So for us, that's the focus. And it's not just a focus of the management team, it's also a focus of the board. So we have a really strong board, very collaborative with management. We operate really, really well together. And I think that's a competitive advantage. Without doubt, there's a strong view that a board with a growth mindset, not necessarily there to govern the business. They are entrepreneurial and they're trying to grow the business hand in hand with management that can really ultimately create the great outcomes for shareholders. A hundred percent. And I want value for our board fees too, right? I mean, they've got to work hard. I mean, we're lucky. We've got a really well-balanced board. They bring an incredible amount of insight to the table. Many of them have been involved with the company for a long time. So there's a great sense of trust between management and board and they back us and we make sure that we always deliver. But there's a a great sense of trust and a car sales board meeting, the governance piece goes for about 30 seconds and the real conversation is around strategy. So what are the things that we're looking at? What are the things that we're working on? How are we looking to move the business forward? Where are the risks? How are we looking to avoid those risks? I mean, I'd describe our culture as a paranoid culture, right? We never wanna have happen to us what we did to Fairfax. You know, we were able to disrupt them and we don't want to be disrupted ourselves. So it's always about being focused on the future, you know, horizon two and horizon three, what's coming at us, what is it that we can't see? Because it's the competition that you can't see that you should be fearing, not the competition that you can. So there's always a lot of conversation around that with the board and with the management team. We're going to come back to horizon two and three. I do want to just close this loop. It seems to me that the founder transition and Greg moving out of the business would have been hard for you, a mentor, a great CEO and and founder, but ultimately left the business and it was a bit of a textbook founder transition because often founders can hang around the hoop either too long or they move to the board and meddle in places that they shouldn't. And yet Greg had the egoless view that he was just going to remove himself from the business and, and give you a clear runway. How did that make you feel? I was petrified. (laughs) 
yeah, I mean, the world is littered with CEOs that replace highly successful founders and stuff it up. So I didn't want to add my name to that list. I've worked in an organisation with Paranoia Dominates and I'm replacing one of Australia's best founding fathers. So yeah, I was nervous about all of that. But yeah, the things that I had going in my corner was that obviously I'd been in the organisation for a long time and Greg and I have a very close friendship relationship and yeah, he um, he's always been a great mentor and supporter of mine for, for many, many years. And so I, I always knew that I had that in my corner, I had a great board, had a great management team. So that's always been important. But for me, keeping that connection between the founder of the organisation and the organisation's been important too. So yeah, Greg and I have a coffee every week. You said he started in a in a garage. Well, guess what? He's gone back to a garage. And, uh, and I'm sure it's a better looking garage. Oh, it's well, it's the world's best looking garage. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's still a great mentor, a great friend. I'm able to tap into him um, when we need to from time to time, which has been fantastic I just don't think enough companies when they transition from founder to non-founder do that well and I think you know if you can keep the founder connected to the business in a way which makes them feel good makes them feel like they're making a contribution still and it's their baby at the end of the day you know I, I think is a great outcome so yeah I've been very fortunate you're listening to scaling up with Ed Cowan a podcast brought to you by TDM growth partners Visit the website tdmgrowthpartners.com or for interesting insights and commentary, follow us on Twitter at TDM underscore growth. Let's bring people up to speed in this car sales story and we'll move on to Horizon 2 after that. But I think last year did all a bit over $450 million in revenue, but you've become you know, a free cash flow machine. And it's a great example of what software and technologies can become in a day and age when we associate cash burn in fast growing technology companies at some state of maturity, although you're, you're still growing, but at scale, I should say. The margins are insane. The cash gets generated. And in your case, you, you pay dividends. What was the key to unlocking this at scale and the key pillars of the marketplace handbook that enabled you to not only win the market, but expand margins along the way? Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot in that question, right? I mean, that's a very big question. The first thing to say is he who has the most things for sale tends to win in marketplaces. So how we've thought about evolving that top line and building margin out it's about offering services that create significant value, being accountable. And if, if I'm accountable and I can demonstrate value, then the conversation around that value that I'm delivering is much easier because it's transparent. So in our case, you know, I mean, for our customers, you know, I know the opportunities that we're delivering to them. We've got a pretty good idea in terms of the outcomes they're generating from those opportunities. So measuring a return on investment is much more transparent and the conversation that flows from that is much easier to have. And so for us, the focus has always been on building unique services, unique capabilities, hard to replicate for others, demonstrate significant value to our customers and help our customers' businesses grow. So if we focus on you know, what's in it for the customer and how do we help our customer become more efficient in what they do and get better outcomes for their investment, 
then everything should take care of itself. So that's been a core growth pillar. And then outside of that, it's been, okay, so where are the opportunities to deepen that or widen that? And you know, in our case, it's been about you know, how do we then take that capability that we've built here and we've done it reasonably well, and then take that into other markets that are less mature, we can replicate it. Because the Australian car market is very small relative to the United States or most other countries in the world. But we have, a, as you mentioned before, one of the best marketplaces for jobs, one of the best marketplaces for real estate, and one of the best marketplaces for cars in the world. And it's how do we take that intellectual property and IT and tech and leverage it into other markets. I think one of the things we don't do so well as a country is recognise the fact that we do actually do some really good things in tech, which is world leading. And so for us, it's been about taking that and moving that offshore as well. Probably a good time to talk to this because, as you say, to leverage the process power that car sales has built up over two decades and move them into bigger markets is a, is a massive growth driver for this business. What have you learnt in dealing with some of these emerging markets, be it Brazil or in Southeast Asia, very different culturally, different governance structures? How have you managed the business from a Melbourne head office and yet have this global outlook? I think one of the mistakes that a lot of corporates make is they go, well, we've made this business successful here, let's replicate that success into another market. And they go in there with the view that, yeah, we're just gonna take what we do here and we're gonna drop it in there and it's gonna all be fantastic again. But yeah, there's, there's so many things that get in the way of that. Language, culture, market structures, history of the way markets have evolved are all vastly different. Even within a country, you can have different regions that function very differently. So our philosophy when we've gone into markets like Brazil, for instance, has been the first thing and the most important thing. And if I reflect on every deal that we've done really well and every deal that we haven't done well, what's the common denominator? The common denominator is often the people and the partner. So, you know, it's about finding that cultural fit, finding the right people that you, one, you get along with. Two, that see the world through the same lens. Might have different culture and different language, but you see the world similarly. You both have a similar perspective around what the future looks like. That's been critical. And then going into a, a country with the view that we're going to be very flexible. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we have that we've learned and evolved, but we're not arrogant enough to assume that that's going to necessarily work in that country. And so we always go into a new market with a view that it's about what the market needs, not what we want to deliver to the market. It's wonderful insight. Part of the growth journey has been, as you talked about, delivering more value to your customers, be it that utility through finance or inspections or instant offers. I'm sure there have been products or innovations that you've tried that haven't worked. How have you thought about innovation generally and fostering a culture of innovation? Look, I guess the first thing to say is the philosophy has always been we never want to die wondering and it's about having a crack. It's about testing and learning failing fast. When stuff works great, we'll just keep feeding it. When it fails, we'll kill it. Sometimes we've held on to the dream a little bit too long with some things, but many things we have killed quickly. But the innovation culture here is that we're prepared to, one, disrupt ourselves. And I think any business needs to be prepared to disrupt itself because if you don't do it, I guarantee you there's three other people that are out there trying it now. 
and I think that was an early mistake that some companies made in the media space many years ago. They weren't prepared to disrupt themselves. So we, we know we have to be prepared for that. And so we innovate 100 different ways any day of the week. We're always looking at 100 different things that we can change and evolve when it comes to our platforms. It's about iteration. It's not about revolution. It's about making constant change, constant tweaks. We don't have anyone in this business with the title of captain of innovation or CEO of innovation. Now, innovation is everyone's responsibility. And it's not just innovation around product. I mean, most companies think that innovation is all about product when it comes to technology, and that's a big part of it. But if you were to ask many people here what was one of the key success drivers of car sales, tech was one of it. But the biggest, I think, part of our success has been our business model. So it's being innovative around your business model and structuring your company in such a way that's hard to replicate and is unique. And so for me, it's innovating around business process, innovating around product and technology. And so as an organisation, we're focused, you know, we try and stay focused on all those things. And then it's also been about looking at what's going on in the world around us and adapting ideas, not being arrogant enough to assume that, you know, what we do is the most innovative and it's being prepared to take perspectives from others, adapt them in our market and use them. Yeah, I'm not afraid to say we like some of the stuff that the seat guys have done over the years and, and gone, well, we should do that. And I think that's an important trait as well. But yeah, we run hackathons and all the rest of it. Naturally lends itself to this next question around this horizon too and what's next. We're sitting in the boardroom here today. I'm sure there have been some robust discussions as to whether it's with all the data and liquidity in the market, do you hold inventory? Or I'm sure there's a whole range of some crazy, some really great strategic ideas. What do you think is that next big horizon for car sales? So look, the market is evolving a lot and everyone's markets are. If I think about automotive, you've got EV and the emergence of EV and what does that do over time? You know, the car fleet in Australia is one of the oldest in the OECD. The average age of a car on the road in Australia is about 10.2, 10.3 years. So you know, we, there's change coming around EVs and you know, car sales in a great position. The way consumer behaviours are evolving is changing quickly. When you think about what we've all endured over the last 18 months, the emergence of the digital economy. People talk about the emergence of the digital economy. There is no such thing. Digital is now everything. Digital is now in every organisation. Every company has to be digital. So for me, consumer behaviours change. So how do we stay relevant in that context and provide solutions to our customers and our consumers that meet the requirements of the digital age? You've then got autonomous vehicles and you know when's that going to happen I mean five years ago I remember you know the conversations that were going with many of our investors about you know by 2025 50 percent of the cars on the road are going to be yeah and some things happen quickly and some things happen slowly this is going to be one of those things that will happen slowly but it will evolve so there's a lot that's going on in automotive and it's a very exciting time so for us it's thinking about what the needs of our customers are going to be where the consumer's going to be over the course of the next five to 10 years and making sure that we have solutions in place. And one of the, you know, talking about innovation before, one of the things that we've launched recently has been a mobility marketplace. So a business called Placey, which effectively takes all the taxi companies, many of the large uh, ride-sharing platforms, public transport, limousines, combines it all into, into one single platform and provides consumers with optionality around how they want to consume mobility services. 
because you know, with public transport being disrupted the way it's been with pandemics and people not wanting to get into ride hailing and so on, all those behaviours have been disrupted. So it's how do you provide a solution in a market like that? So for me, mobility services are, are one of those Horizon 2, Horizon 3 things that we need to watch. Hand in hand with innovation and fostering this innovation culture is essentially around attracting and retaining talent. Has this become easier or harder as you've grown? Because on one side of the coin, I can imagine there are lots of people that want to do things at scale. You know, the complexity and challenge of technology at scale really interests them. But on the other side of the coin, there are more shiny new toys for engineers to work at that are offering big equity packages and a different challenge, I guess, both emotionally and professionally. How have you thought about making sure that car sales is the employer of choice in Melbourne? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Um, so I'd say to you, it's become harder and it's become easier all at the same time. I mean, it just depends on the talent that you're looking for at the time. But our focus as an organisation has been on our EVP, EVP being employer value proposition. So how do we differentiate ourselves as an employer to ensure that we're attracting the right talent into the company? And so there's, there's a whole lot of different layers around that. So it's about making sure that as an organisation... We're innovative, making sure that we're forward-looking, making sure that we're, you know, we're using the latest tools and technology and we're thinking about the way we operate as an organisation in a contemporary manner and structure. We're giving people autonomy and freedom to be innovators themselves. Like I said, you know, no one has the title of chief innovator in this organisation, so you know, we try and give people some ability around that. So it's about... EVP, it's about all those things, but it's also about the culture of the business as well. So people, when they start employment with any organisation, actually when they start their careers, they don't want to just work in a job. They don't want a job. They want to make a mark. They want to leave footprints in the sand. And what you offer has to be more than just a job. You've got to allow people to make a broader contribution. And so the way we think about our EVP is for engineers, let's say. When engineers come here, they'll have a, a job coding. But we also want them to feel free to make a contribution to education. So you know, we work with other providers which will go into school and um, CS is one of them where we'll allow our engineers to volunteer their time, go into schools, educate kids on tech because ultimately those kids will hopefully one day feed back into car sales but our engineers get the opportunity to make a bigger contribution to society and I, I love that stuff and I think as an employer that helps us in many, many different ways. So it's, it's about how do you combine all of those things building a great EVP, a great ecosystem, and we have a great ecosystem here in Cremorne that helps people make a broader contribution. And a great call out to a mutual friend, Hugh Williams and CS in schools and the wonderful work they're doing there. It's a nice time to go a bit deeper on the culture that you are building and have built over many years. I don't think I've ever been so warmly welcomed as when I walked through the door this morning. I asked the lovely lady who was working on the front desk, what do you love about working here? And she said, I feel loved and included. And that speaks to your warmth. I know this is something you're very passionate about. You're a director of Inclusive Australia, ambassador for the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. You want to be centre stage in changing the employee landscape. Can you talk to the challenges of operationalising and prioritising diversity and inclusion when you are now a very large corporate? That's a great question. I mean, the challenges are 
being a tech company, it's how do I, how do we bring more females into technology, get more females interested in tech? I mean, if I look at our, our workforce, and you know, we work super hard at this, we would still only have about 33% of our workforce that's female. And, and it just burns me. Like, it really gets to me when, um, when we lose female talent. Um, big challenge is how do you bring more into the pool? And you know, we talked about CS in schools. It's got to start early. Um, you've got to start really early. And you've got to create the right environment that would make females want to participate. So it goes very deep into things like language that we use, even our jobs that we place on platforms like Seek. Yeah, the language that we use in those has to be gender neutral. It has to be attractive and inviting for females to want to want to participate. My view in all of this, and the reason why I'm so passionate about it, or one of them, is because I know that our business becomes more successful with greater diversity, because greater diversity brings different thought into the company. And I mentioned again, you know, we don't have an innovator in this business, but by having people with diversity and background and everything else that goes with that, ultimately makes us a stronger business. It makes us a more profitable business, brings better ideas and better capability. So I know it has a, a fantastic commercial outcome, which is good for our shareholders. And that's what I'm chasing, but it's hard. It's super hard. Yeah, but the positive impact will outweigh the challenges every day of the week. I'm interested, you talked to the board and support they've given you. One thing is to talk the talk, but I, I really feel that the car sales leadership, be it management team and the board, is deeply motivated to walk the walk, particularly around this issue. If anyone reads the car sales annual report, it is front and centre. The values are front and centre. The DE&I is front and centre. How has your board supported you on this micro mission of trying to change your workforce? I guess they're extremely open and we all share the same vision for the organisation. You know, we all we all share the same perspective around our values and behaviours as an organisation and we do walk the walk and talk the talk when it comes to values and behaviours and you know, even the last 12 months we've, we've just spent a lot of time and effort on redefining our company values and bringing everyone on the journey around those those values, including the board. So the perspective is we're all in it together. Uh, we've had to do some, not had to, we've wanted to do some really um, different things when it comes to giving our people choice. And some of the things that we've done over the last 12 months, particularly in the, in the space of diversity and inclusion, to make the workplace a, a better place for people, uh, have been really well supported by the board at all levels. So I think yeah, it's the openness that they have, it's the willingness to make change, and it's a recognition that these values and behaviours, again, help support the organisation in terms of its mission, but also support the organisation in terms of delivering better outcomes for shareholders, which is what their core requirements are in terms of working for shareholders and creating value for shareholders. I think it's all been very self-supportive, so uh, it's been relatively easy to get, get them over the line on all this stuff. One last question, because your time is much more valuable than mine. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Maybe just a mistake that you look back on as a leader that you know has provided a, a great opportunity for personal or professional growth? Wow. This is one of those questions where you go, yeah, I'll give you a mistake, but I'll, I'll turn it into how I conquered all. <laughs> we can stick with a mistake that you regret. Yeah, look, um, to be really honest, I mean, we've made plenty of mistakes and I've made plenty of mistakes in my career and, you know, 
none of them have been fatal. But I guess as an organisation and as an individual, you know, we've, we've always encouraged mistakes. But when you do make a mistake, it's about picking yourself up, dusting yourself off and never making the same mistake again, right? So there's, there's plenty of commercial mistakes I've made. Um, all of them have been very small, easy to fix, uh, which has been fortunate. Nothing really comes to mind, Ed, that sort of stands out as being tragic. I think, you know, coming to car sales was the best thing I've ever done. And uh, I've really loved the journey and uh, still love the journey that we're on. So that's a, that's a super hard one to answer. <laughs> Cam, I've absolutely loved this. Thanks so much for your time. That was brilliant. Thanks, Ed. Great to catch up.